Hello, I'm Paul Mathias, National Director at Hayes Education. As the UK's leading education recruiter, we're absolutely committed to sharing meaningful insight and information with the education community. And we're delighted to be working in partnership with Sir Tim Brickhouse and David Cameron, the real David Cameron, on this series of podcasts based around the Hayes booklet on 10 challenges to becoming a truly creative school. These podcasts are a a great opportunity to learn from Tim and David's experience and ideas. We hope you enjoy this series of podcasts on Creative Curriculum. Well, welcome back, everyone who's had the stamina to come back again. We've done two of these podcasts, we're now on to the third. What we're hoping to talk about tonight is the school environment, how we can make that more creative, and then also talk a bit about timetabling. At least that's the ambition. We'll see where we get to with it. Uh, Tim, I know that you've got particular views around timetablers and timetabling and the mystique that surrounds that. So maybe you'd want to kick us off with that whole view that you have on timetablers and timetabling. Well, I've always kind of dined out on the story that the most influential person in the school, at secondary school anyway, is is a person who disappears kind of round about beginning of May and reappears at the beginning of July looking suspiciously bronzed, knowing a lot about cricket and tennis and declaring this is the only answer. And that person is the timetabler and they mightily affect how kids learn, how teachers teach and the arrangements for the next school year. And I don't think... We think enough about that. And for my money, one of the secrets to creativity in an age in which there's a kind of reductionist tendency of measuring only things, the things that are easy to measure is to say, well, come on, let's, let's talk about two timetables. There's a timetable that we traditionally know about, which is French, it might be a two-week timetable. Whatever it is, it's kind of the notion of French followed by maths, followed by double science. By the way, I've always wondered about why this is so incredibly coherent, because it doesn't seem to me to be... I mean, the totality might be coherent, but I think if I was enjoying it, I would (laughs) regard it as kind of rather broken up. But that kind of traditional timetable is always changed by schools during the year by what is usually serendipity. And the serendipity involves, well, we're going to take year three away or we're going to take all of year one or year seven away during um, the the first kind of term uh, and we're going to establish the relationships between the teacher and the taught, and they're going to have a residential. Now, some schools think through the nature of those beyond-the-classroom experiences and actually have a coherent rationale for that. But most schools don't express it. Mm-hmm. So my argument is that we need a much more coherent rationale for a second timetable. And I just conclude this opening bit, David, by saying 
I was at a school doing an inset and argued this case saying, look, for heaven's sake, work out the rationale for the second time, tell whether it's visits, whether it's going to the theatre, whether it's residentials, whatever it may be, intensive interest-led learning experiences. And don't do it serendipitously, actually work out the reason for doing all this. And I said, call it the second time table. Then when Ofsted come calling, you could offer it to them and say, by the way, we have a second time table and here's the rationale for it. And I, I remember saying to this school, look, if you do that, Ofsted will be so bowled over because there aren't any schools that do it, that they will be incredibly impressed, baffled even. Um, and I have to say that the school in question, which was outstanding, God knows why they wanted me to talk to them, <laughs> but, but they did do that. And when I met the deputy some months later, they'd had a most appalling experience with Ofsted, and he said it was the second time table that saved us. We're still outstanding because they never encountered a school that had got a rationale for all those vivid, interest-led, intensive immersion learning experiences. So that's where I think creativity comes into it in terms of the timetable. Mm. And I think, I think that's really interesting because one of the things that you and I have talked about often is this whole concept of what constitutes learning. And I've often argued for a more radical model that allows that space to be there more often as opposed to, well, we'll now stop the usual timetable and we'll move on to that other one. Um, and I think there's something that we yeah. need to think about in terms of how we creatively get that opportunity within the timetable. I, I love what you're saying about intensive interest-led immersive experiences and that's not something I've heard you articulate before, but it seems to me to absolutely sum up something philosophically that we're trying to achieve, both you and I, in a lot of the work that we do around learning. Um, and the idea that that doesn't have to be part of an alternative, but part of the core of what we do, I think is something that's worth well, talking I, about. Yeah, well, are you saying, because I've heard this argument before, that... We shouldn't call it a second timetable, but we should, as it were, build, build in the freedom for a teacher within the whole year to have experiences within what I would call the first traditional timetable yep. to do those things. Martin, I, 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 while I accept that and would encourage teachers to take that freedom, I don't think it can be done fully within the normal timetable. Otherwise, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't take kids away for residential experiences. You wouldn't take them to the theatre. You wouldn't have super learning days, which some, uh -huh. some schools engage in. So I think it is not one or the other. It's probably both. Yeah, and I think now that I've reflected on it, I can see value in that because to some extent what you talk about is the length of the intervention or diversion, however we describe it. I think for me, there's something around this whole idea of delivery versus capture, which I talk about a lot. Um, and I think there's a tendency for us to control what we do with young people through the mechanism of delivery. 
In other words, if we're teaching it, we can tick the box, we've got the coverage, we've done all of that. But we aren't sure they've learnt it. That's right. And that's where the capture thing becomes profoundly important because that's the alternative, isn't it, to to create the opportunity for experience and then to make sure that it's captured. And for me, there's something powerful around that idea of validating the flexible timetable because you make an effort to capture both the formal and informal learning that's come from that. Yeah, I, I, I accept that. And I, I, I think that's why I'm so anxious that it that people think, think explicitly about the opportunities of timetabling rather than the traditional notion, well, we've got a timetable and that's it, because we know damn well that that isn't it. Mm. I mean, if you look at a primary timetable, for example, uh, particularly in England as opposed to Scotland, you would find most schools, well, many, many schools, I think it is most, will be focusing on what I would call traditional basic skills during the morning, mm-hmm. and then in the afternoon, they go to the rest of the curriculum. They perhaps pursue research topics or whatever. So, kind of in a curious way, they've got two timetables too. Ah, and I think that model's an interesting model as well, isn't it? Because it's that sense of let's do what's important while they're fresh, and then let's look at how we can fill other things into the rest of the time available. And I think one of the things that I've only, I suppose, fully understood now in this part of the conversation is that what drives that creative timetable for you is that sense of purpose. It's about schools being absolutely clear about what it is they want to achieve, both for and with young people, and then creating a construct, creating a framework within which they can deliver that purpose. I like, yes, yes. And when you said earlier, well, we teach these things, but we're not absolutely sure whether they learn them, I suppose I'm arguing that my notion of the intensive interest-led immersion learning experience is more likely to engage kids in learning something than a kind of traditional didactic, this is what we're teaching them. So I kind of feel that's another reason for thinking about this and making sure that we've got opportunities for kids t- to have both sets of it, of different sorts of learning experience. Mm. And for me, I've had a... I've had a different experience, I think, in some senses from you in that I've been a timetabler. I think the point remains absolutely the same, though. What we did as timetablers was impose a structure on learning. And the learning... Did that make you uncomfortable? Absolutely. Um, My experience of timetabling was interesting, Tim, in the sense that my main work was around filling in the difficult parts of the timetable. The main framework, the main structure for certificate classes, as it was in a secondary school, was done by the head. And then we had to do the difficult bit of mosaicing in the other parts around that. And I felt that we were imposing a structure on learning which bore no relationship at all to the nature of the learning that was taking place. Yeah. 
and that what we were doing was imposing on teachers. So they then had to fit what they did into that, in our case, very rigid framework. I'm absolutely sure that's right. And I think that's how t teachers really feel they are treated, namely they have to fit. So it isn't merely that the kids have to fit, it's the teachers have yeah. to fit as well. There isn't kind of room, much room for self-expression. And I suppose I'm arguing very strongly that the notion of having two timetables might be predicated on the acknowledgement that not to discuss two timetables is to live with an imposition on children and teachers which restricts the opportunities and therefore having a debate about a second timetable actually provokes this sort of discussion yeah. we're having and makes it more likely that you would set out a set of experiences <clears throat> in the two that had a better chance of what I think I heard Anthony Seldon, I think I've shared this with you, Anthony Seldon once say that Thoreau, the American, had said everyone has a song within them. Mm -hmm. And the tragedy is that too many go to their grave with the song still inside them. And I think it's our job as teachers and in schools to desperately try to f unlock that song and make sure that everybody in the process is fulfilled. Yeah. And I hadn't, I hadn't either understood that before either. Um, I've used either twice in that, but that idea of the two timetables forcing that discussion and that consideration, that makes more sense of that approach to me now than anything that we've talked about previously. Yeah, I see what you mean. And I think that's all I want to do. I want I, My belief is that you can only have creative circumstances and timetables within which people are likely to learn if 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 we can provoke teachers to be and schools to be thinking collectively about i mean tirelessly really in a way about what are the best arrangements in which kids can learn mm. um, i think we'll come back to this as well because when we come back to talk about staff development i think one of the issues that we'll touch on is how many teachers have been so ground down by the system or are so insecure or so obsessed with accountability that even where they have permissions, they're not either able or willing to take them. And there's been a theme that you and I have touched on, I think, several times before around this difference between Scotland and England, where in Scotland there's a sense that teachers have the permissions. They have a much more flexible approach the curriculum, they have a much more open description of the curriculum, the purposes are much less constrained, it's a different model. And yet, it appears to me that there's as much good practice in England yeah, as there is in Scotland. I know, and I'll tell you what, that's really, really bothering me. Uh, and the reason it's bothering me is this, which is, while I totally approve of what you're up to in Scotland, there, there is a, f I, I'll just speak for myself, which is that when there's been no pressure on me, I've often worried and wondered whether the pace of what I do is the pace that's necessary or whether I relax. 
So you might argue, this is a terrible argument to advance, that what is happening in England is that the, I think, intolerable pressure put upon schools and teachers is so forcing people to think. I mean, this is curious. Yeah. But that, that they are responding to that, but that sadly the result of that is a burnout that isn't being experienced in Scotland. So it has both a good side and a bad side. What do you say to that? Yeah, and, and I th I'd recognise that, I think. Um, and I think sometimes what we see is we see very good practice in England, both among leaders and head teachers, and related, I suppose, to the topic that we're discussing, a flexibility around the timetable, an adventurous approach to the timetable, different ways of thinking about the nature of learning, how it's constructed, how it's delivered, all of that. But it does place, I think, a huge pressure on, on teachers. And one of the things I hope that we'll come back to with Hayes is the whole theme that we developed in one of the other conversations around leading in impossible times. Because I, I do think we need to keep coming back to that idea of how do people cope under pressure? How do they generate improvement in a situation which seems threatening or inimical or overly accountable or whatever? I think you've got... You, you, I mean, it is a real, real issue for us, but I think your preoccupation in staff development and leadership needs to be about creating energy. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk about staff development on another occasion. But it does seem to me, and this is where I'd like to move us on, that the way in which you organise the timetable, whether it's one or two or however we organise it, powerfully affects the energy capacity of individual teachers and of schools. And I think the other element which we must cover in our present discussions, is that the environment in which everybody works equally affects people's energy and the possibility of children's being, children being provoked, provoked, stimulated, I think is a better word, into being, into thinking and being likely to be committed, motivated, resilient learners. Yeah, and and I, I think that's where we need to go, Tim. I, I agree with that. And one of the cliches that I've developed is that learning is as much about the transference of energy as mm. the transmission mm. of knowledge. And, you know, I, we will have discussions, I think, around rigour. We'll have discussions around accountability and all of that. But I think unless we've got that dynamic in schools of people doing things that they see a point and purpose in and having, if you like, the springboard from that, having the success that comes from doing something that you think is worth achieving and moving forward, then I think we put everything we attempt to do in terms of school improvement at risk. Um, and I think it's not only the idea of timetable, but the way that we've created boxes in which people feel they need to deliver you know, a three-part lesson. We've become obsessed, I think, with performance, structure and script, and we've endangered energy, innovation and imagination as a result. 
I agree with that. And, and that brings me on to just a brief discussion about, well, how do you make the environment in which learning takes place as creative as possible? And for my money, there are three aspects to this at least, which is the visual, the aural, and the behavioural. Now, clearly the visual can affect children. I mean, you can have, you can go into schools which are barren wastes, or you can go into schools uh, which are stimulating, uh, thought-provoking places. For example, primary schools, which don't merely reinforce the words or, you know, have got on the back of doors the books people have read and, and that sort of thing, but actually have puzzles, challenges on the walls, which kids are expected to complete. Um, schools which use quotations all over the place. Indeed, I've come across schools who um, extend that to the staff room. Mm -hmm. So the staff room have got a kind of, you know, there's a bill post. You remember bill posters that yep. will be prosecuted? Well, we've now got people who are fly posting on the walls of staff rooms, interesting quotations about what it means to be a teacher. You know that lovely one of Gino, uh -huh. meant to be, you know, um, the kind of notion of I've come to the frightening conclusion that it's my actions in the classroom that make the difference. I create the climate, I set the weather. And, and teachers do that. So you're trying to set the weather for them in the staff room by reminding them that that's what they do. And they are then setting the weather in terms of behaviour for the kids. So if there is a behavioural, isn't there? I mean, you know, the teacher who greets the kids who walk into the club, very, very simple. But, mm. you know, so many schools don't do that. And yet so many teachers do and reap the benefit, the sort of kind of arm around the shoulder of the kid who is going to cause mayhem in the classroom and the quiet word in his ear will make a huge difference to whether that kid actually is engaged during the lesson. Um, creating an environment whereby it's the teacher who says where everybody sits um, is going to affect behaviour in the classroom. Uh, the kind of notion of um, schools, in primary schools, you notice, don't you, how they use music to calm the mood in terms of mm. whatever kids are going to do when they walk into the uh, assembly, for whatever reason it may be. So I think there's a huge, often unspoken way in which schools go for creativity in terms of the environment. I don't know whether you relate to that and what you would add to it. Well, I think that division that you've used about visual, oral and behavioural is really useful and really powerful. And it's something that I think I've wrestled with for a long time because often what we've done in schools and certainly what I was very guilty of doing was setting out my, my classroom rules as a teacher now, that was a long time ago, yeah. and I would reflect on that differently now. But they were all don'ts. Yeah, yeah. They were all, don't talk when someone else yeah, is yeah, talking. Yeah. It was all of that kind of thing. And I know that there's lots of criticism around false positivism, but that idea of couching these things in a much more creative way that we listen to others. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you entirely. And I think that concept that you've got about how you create that behavioural environment and that idea of consistency around expectations is an interesting one because it's both traditional and progressive. Yeah, it is. I think in some of the ways that you're talking about it, you're talking about a very progressive approach to discipline, something based on positive views, something based on encouragement rather than threat or punishment or whatever. But the idea of consistency, I think, is the powerful traditional element around that so that young people know exactly what's expected of them. Yeah, yeah. And it's more than a don't. It's a do. It is a do, and and it's... In our school, we. Ah. Uh, and and you notice that I was just actually looking at something that a school had given me today, which was around a teaching and learning policy. And it was full of musts, teachers must. And my only comment in reply, because it was otherwise a super document, was there are too many musts. I mean, why can't that be expressed as in X school, all of us, boom, do. Yeah. In other words, present tense. Uh, so I think language powerfully affects the environment and, and what people emphasise. So it's, in a way, what you've said has provoked me into thinking, well, it's the visual, the it's our, or it's behavioural, and maybe it's linguistic, mm-hmm. that the environment is affected by our linguistic choices. Uh, and it's something that you've talked about a lot in terms of the importance of communication and I've heard you say a number of times with heads, you're all crap communicators. That's the phrase that you've used. And it's Can't that, believe it. <laughs> but it is that idea, isn't it, that the way that we speak, you know, you talk a lot about not describing people in the negative. So yeah. you, you should never talk about non-teaching staff. Yeah. Um, you would never describe yourself, you often say, as a non-female. But that idea of what is permissive language... What is creative language? What is language that brings a dynamic to the school? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And, I mean, for my money, the environment of a school is set not merely by the language that the adults are using, but also their interests that they display to the kids. Mm. And in particular, the, the environment is set. Just think of the difference there is. If you're a kid in a school and you encounter staff who are talking about, in a positive way, what it is they that really interests them, you know, there may be there may be teachers, there may be other members of staff who are absolutely dead keen on what well, traditionally in my age it might have been stamp collection, but it might be photography, it might be whatever it is, it might be rambling, it might be people who are, who who write poetry. Mm-hmm. I mean, to share all that with kids, the modelling that an adult does so cre- so affects the environment in which kids actually, because they can understand, they, 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 they encounter things that they may not openly acknowledge, but subliminally mm. they're, they're absorbing. And you were brilliant around that with your example that you gave of working in a school in Scotland and working with two very erudite educationalists who were telling us that there were no real answers 
in terms of education? And your response was, yes, there is an answer. And, and you knew where it was. And effectively, it was an English teacher in the school who'd created that visual and permissive environment yeah, in her classroom yeah. and had done it fundamentally by sharing what she was reading, what she was interested in, and opening up that whole world, yeah, if yeah. you like, of joint learning, that's joint right. activity and joint intervention. I do think there's something powerful around that, and I think there's also something really helpful in a lot of what you say about the relationship between the visual environment and the visible word. Um, you know, there's so much discussion around what colour a classroom should be and what colours work and all of that kind of thing. And I think what you're doing is bringing it down to that fundamental element of what is it that we can do in schools visually, orally, behaviourally, that will create a climate for learning. Yeah, and all I'd say in addition to that is that that definition is very useful because people can discuss it and say, how can we be more creative under those three headings? And I'd want them to put a check in the behavioural against linguistically what are we what yeah. sort of language are we using and how we're using it. And I think that's the kind of thing that we'd really like people to come back to us on because what we can't talk about is how that's been done practically in individual classrooms and schools. And one of the points that you make in the booklet that these conversations are based on is that there are brilliant examples of display particularly in primary schools and special yeah, schools, no. but also in secondary. And I think we would like people to come forward with ideas around that on Twitter because we want this not just to be a series of podcasts, but a stimulus for conversations that will continue on through Twitter, will continue online. And if we get feedback, we would like to be able to come back to that in future podcasts. Um, I think what we've done thus far is at least set out the main framework for how we feel the environment can be creative. And I think we've built that onto the timetabling conversation we've had earlier. And hopefully there's something in here for people to take away and think about in terms of the structures, the appearance, and indeed the culture of their school. Thanks for that. Thank you for downloading this Hayes Education podcast. To request a copy of the 10 Challenges to Becoming a Truly Creative School booklet and to find out more about the services we offer, you can visit our website, which is hayes.co.uk forward slash education. You can speak to your local office regarding forthcoming leadership breakfast seminars. And you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Hayes Education UK. Hayes Education.